Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most famous and captivating ideas that Plato brought forth into the world of thought passed on to us all the way down to the present is his allegory of the cave. And this is found in the beginning of book seven of one of his longest works, The Republic. This is an allegory. And as I'm pointing out here, an allegory is a kind of story that doesn't have all of its meaning on the surface. It should be a fairly interesting story, and this one is, in order to captivate the audience's attention, but it gestures or refers beyond itself, often with an explanation, as Plato indeed provides here, to a bigger, more important, more fundamental story. And in this case, Plato has these imaginary prisoners who, if you question the story closely, they couldn't really exist in the way that he's depicting them, as we'll talk about in just a moment. But it's supposed to be a story about not only everybody in his own time, but all of us human beings in the present, in the future, in the past, the general human condition and what education, not just what passes for education, but what genuine education, the way that Plato conceives of it, would in effect be doing. So what he's providing us here is a sort of blueprint for what real education would look like. And he's going to frame it in terms of his famous doctrine of the forms. And he's going to introduce an idea that only comes up at a few other places. You might call it the form beyond forms, the super form, the form of the good here in the Republic, also called the form of the beautiful in the symposium. So we have this allegory and I will go through it because there may be a few people who have not yet already been introduced to it. I'm not depicting it in any sort of graphic form because there's plenty of resources out there, cartoons and images where you can find people providing depictions of this in a way that self-referentially would perhaps trap us back in another cave. So we want to do this in words and we can talk about this original condition of these prisoners. Plato tells us, imagine some prisoners who are not people that suddenly became prisoners. They have been in a prison underground their entire life since birth. They don't know anything other than that prison and their heads are kept facing forward at all times. Now they can talk with each other, but they cannot turn their heads around. And this is particularly important because behind them in this cave are some other human beings. And these other human beings are walking across something like a bridge or an elevated area. And there's a fire behind them projecting light onto the wall of the cave that's in front of them. And these figures walk back and forth and converse and also hold up objects or marionettes or stick figures of things that then cast shadows on the wall in front of 
these prisoners. And you have to imagine these prisoners as being occupied the entire day long with just looking ahead and hearing some things that are reflecting off of the cave wall. So they sound as if because of the echo that they are coming directly from the cave wall and they are watching these shows of a certain sort and they converse with each other. They compete about who can name or predict what's going on the best and they give prizes. And here the analogy starts to get a little bit stretched. How do they actually give these prizes? We don't know. Plato doesn't tell us, you know, and you can add all sorts of other questions in there. What do they eat? How do they go to the bathroom? Where do they sleep? That's immaterial to the story itself. Obviously you couldn't effectively do this in the way that Plato's describing, but he's after some sort of point. Now, putting aside the people who are in the background and are in some degree in the know, they understand what the situation is and ignoring them for the time being, because Plato doesn't really tell us much about them or why they're doing this. What is the condition of these people who are trapped as prisoners? They are kept in a condition of ignorance, of perpetual ignorance but it's not merely ignorance. They in fact think that they know what's going on. They have formed some sort of conclusions about what reality is. And they think that reality are these shadows of objects cast on the wall and the voices that they're hearing. You could say that for them, reality is the complex or the totality of what is going on in front of their eyes and ears. Now they're not perceiving these as shadows as such, because they don't know that there are objects casting them. They don't know that this is light produced by a fire that is projected onto their field of vision. So they don't even know what they don't know. And they think that they understand reality. So we have these poor people stuck in this condition. And then one day, one of them is brought out of the cave, probably kicking and screaming. Plato doesn't tell us that, but we can well imagine. He says it will be painful. And if you've ever gone from a condition of low light out into the sunlight, or make it even starker, right? You're brought from a condition of low light, say in the winter, out into a winterscape with the sun blazing and light coming at you from all around. That's very painful for your eyes. And that's you who's actually lived a life mostly in the light. Now imagine you've been in this cave your entire existence. So he's brought out and at first, this prisoner is having a very rough time. Plato talks about, and he says this explicitly, a process of rehabituation of undoing old habits and building new habits. This is not something that happens immediately at once. Instead, the prisoner now freed, so let's call him the liberated person, has to be nursed and guided through making some sense out of this new environment. And there are some reference points that are connected to the things that he has some experience with. First, he looks at shadows and he's able to understand these. He can relate to shadows, but now he actually has the potential to understand them as shadows. They're shadows of things, perhaps a tree, perhaps his own shadow. And now he also starts to see reflections of things, as Plato says, likenesses or similitudes or reflections in water of these things. 
finally he's able to lift his eyes and turn his attention to the myriad things around him. Trees, animals, people, artifacts, all of the things that we could call the architecture and furniture of our waking world. And he's able to slowly fix his eyes upon them. Later, after adjusting in that way, he's able to look a little bit further up and to regard, as Plato says, the heavens and the things of the heavens, to look at the stars, to look at the moon, to look at the clouds, to look at a blue sky. And there's one thing that's particularly central in the heavens that assumes a very important role here, and that's the sun. And if you've ever looked at the sun directly and tried to hold your gaze upon it, you know how difficult that is for those of us who already live in the waking world above the cave. It takes some doing to stare at the sun. And you shouldn't do it for too long, by the way, right? There are some people who've managed to burn their eyes out by doing this continuously. But by looking at the sun, you can start to see things once your eyes adjust to it. And this person is able to form not just a visual image of the sun, but a conception of the sun. The sun as generative of all the things that are, all the things that exist. It is the cause, he says, in a certain way, and it provides them with a sort of order. Plato talks here about the ordering of the seasons, for example, but we could think about all the other things that go with it. And so far, this sounds really great. The prisoner has come out into the wide world above. He's no longer deluded, living in a tawdry little puppet show, which isn't even really a puppet show. It's just a shadow show of silhouettes. And he sees the real things for what they are and how they're ordered. This is a revelation, but it's not a revelation of a moment. It's something, as I pointed out, that requires habituation. This is what education does for this escaped or liberated prisoner. He's been given an education in how things really do stand. How is this an allegory then? We have to think about the meaning for Plato's own philosophy and what this might have to say to us in a broader sense about education in general. So in Plato's view, what's most real is not the visible things of the world, the material things that we encounter. Those are just copies of the immaterial, intelligible, that is understandable, forms or ideas. The ideas or ede of things in Greek. And these are what allow us to identify a dog as a dog or a man as a man or a chair as a chair, according to Plato. And we don't have to go very deep into his doctrine of forms at this point. I can assume a certain understanding or familiarity with this, this idea from most people. But here's what's really important. Education for Plato consists in coming out of a cave where we are obsessed and captivated by material objects. We're studying them. We're making predictions about them. We're naming them, but none of them are truly what they are. They're merely shadows of the real things. And the real things are merely shadows of the forms which 
we can encounter through contemplation and through dialectic, through exercising our mental faculties. And that's what a genuine education ought to be doing. It should be leading us away from the individual material items and towards the genuine real forms that are the archetypes of those items. This is what Plato thinks. And we should be doing this, for example, with the notion of justice or the notion of courage or any of these other virtues. We should also do this with numbers. There's an entire discussion about how this happens. We're not quite at the end of the story yet, though, because we should arrive eventually at the equivalent of the sun in the allegory of the cave. And this is not simply one form among others. This is the most important, the most central form. He calls it the form of the good. It is goodness itself. It is whatever goodness is. And all things that are good participate in that primal goodness. So this too is what education ought to be doing. Not simply introducing us to, and this would be enough already, a myriad of distinct different forms that are the archetypes of the things that we think exist, but the one that provides them with a certain unity and order and beginning the one that is the cause for all of them, the generative cause that in some way that Plato doesn't explain here, gives rise, gives being to all of those. So this is what the allegory of the cave is about. It's not really, as some people like to say, about you know the transformative power of education by learning a few new facts. It's not a, simply about being introduced to some new ideas and then getting yourself out of the cave. You can certainly make that use of it. But Plato's original import, Plato's original scope for this has a metaphysical dimension. You're supposed to get to know what reality itself is so that there is no further cave outside of that you would be having to go out of after that point. This would be the bedrock. This would be the foundation. And then it prepares you for being able to go back into the cave to liberate, that is to educate your fellow prisoners. And that is another part of the story. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.